Hi, and welcome to Birth Trauma Training for Birth Workers, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Erin Bow, clinical and perinatal psychologist and coach. Do you believe trauma could be our biggest teacher? Do you believe that birth is about so much more than just a healthy baby? I'm on a mission to make sure that every birth worker who experiences vicarious trauma has the skills, tools and support that is needed to sustain a long-term career and not burn out. Join me as we explore how to achieve post-traumatic growth and beautiful resilience with the mind-body-spirit connection. We'll strategize how to do sustainable self-care discuss holistic support options and what's happening in our current birth climate. This is not about grabbing your pom-poms and saying just be positive but this podcast is all about finding the strength and beauty from the broken parts. Ground yourself first, take a long slow deep breath in, feel the inner balloon and sit with your body in the present moment. Are you ready? Let's go. This is going to be a bit of an intro, really. I wanted to give a, you know, kind of decent overview before we start for anyone who's just listening for the first time about things like who is this podcast intended for and what are the aims, what are the benefits that you can expect from listening to it because I want Obviously, I want it to be values-driven and I want people to get something out of this. Um, And a bit about me, my professional background, my training and how that all kind of leads into the big why. Why this podcast? Why at this time? Why this particular field? Um, So I'll talk you through about my research, my um, training in terms of like treatment experience I suppose you'd call it as a psychologist and then sort of about my own birth experiences so I've had two traumatic births myself and I've worked with doulas and midwives and you know perinatal professionals and so I wanted to just talk a bit about how did this all kind of come together and I suppose why why me rather than someone else why I'm in what I feel now is actually quite a privileged position to be able to talk about this So from a personal and professional point of view. So this podcast is quite niche, I suppose, in the sense that it is targeted specifically at perinatal professionals or birth workers or whatever term you would like to use for people who are working with birthing people in some capacity. So whether it is in the birth space itself, whether it's in childbirth education, antenatally, whether it's postpartum, whatever whatever way you want to define that. So it's not necessarily something specifically that I've set out um, to do for birthing people specifically. So not necessarily for um, you know women and families who've experienced birth trauma and are looking for support and advice and that kind of thing. Although in saying that, it's absolutely very likely that if you are someone, I mean, this is just how it goes, isn't it? It's one in three. One in three women have had a traumatic birth. So that is going to encompass so many birth workers who are listening anyway. So what I guess I'm saying is whilst I'm directing this, I guess, at more um, 
yeah, birth workers as professionals and how do we deal with this in a work capacity as people experiencing vicarious trauma through work? Absolutely, this might benefit you if you've had your own personal birth trauma or if you're someone who's not a birth worker but you're looking for something along the lines of how to achieve post-traumatic growth, how to achieve resilience because that's what this is all about really. So that's a long-winded way of saying while it's niche you might find something out of it even if you're not a birth worker and I know for a lot of people that I've worked with anyway um, sometimes having your own birth is the conduit for going on to be a birth worker anyway so I wouldn't be surprised if in part of this process there will be people who have thought about their own birth experience whether that's been a positive or a negative or you know somewhere in the middle or it changes that propels them to think hmm I might want to work with birthing people too so the way I'm going to set this up I guess is that we are talking about things that are traumatic we are going to be going to the places that the people do not like to go, the people being you and me. So you cannot talk about trauma without talking about things that are upsetting and uncomfortable. But my intention behind this particular space is to always bring it back to how do we achieve growth? How do we find the positivity? How do we find that beautiful resilience and not a pity party? which is designed to make people feel awful about themselves and to sit and ventilate and just get angry. That's not my intended um, purpose for doing this. Um, so I'm not going to have trigger warnings everywhere. I think listening to a podcast about birth trauma is in and of itself possibly trigger warning enough, but I'm always mindful, I guess, of the way that I talk about things and the language that's used so as not to particularly invoke something that is quite uncomfortable. And I mean, I have the skills and the training to be able to do that, but I cannot possibly, possibly anticipate what's going to be a trigger for everybody. So I always suggest um, that thing I say at the start, ground yourself first. If you need to stop, stop. If you need to come back to it later, I don't suggest this is particularly the sort of podcast you should be listening to while you're like trying to kid wrangle and doing something else, like find a more relaxing podcast for that. This is definitely about personal growth and training and advice and support to some extent. Um, it's not therapy. So please, like, I don't, I don't think anybody would go into a podcast thinking it's going to be a replacement for therapy. But if things come up for you, sit with it and think about where to next yeah so whilst I'm trying to be mindful and sensitive there's no way I can possibly couch this to such an extent that it doesn't upset anybody and that shouldn't be the intention anyway because birth trauma is upsetting our current climate of birth culture in Australia and elsewhere in the world it is upsetting and we need to talk about it and that's a huge huge oh don't get me started, except you are going to get me started because, you know, that's why we're here. It is a huge passion of mine to have it so that, you know, our future generations of kids are like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Like, I'm not saying birth trauma is going to be eradicated. We're going to get rid of it. It's such a personal thing. But definitely could our systems be doing an awful lot better to support women and families so that they're not traumatised? Yes, absolutely. Anyway, so... The outcomes, what can you expect to get from listening to this? So if it's not going to be just a whole heap of negativity and a space for ventilating and complaining and nothing happening, 
I want you to learn something. I want you to come away going, oh, I picked something up useful there, either for myself or for my clients or for someone I know. I am a spread the dandelion seeds kind of person. I think when you've got information and it's useful and you know that it could absolutely change lives, you blow the seeds and you hand it on. That's, you know, what, what partially what I think I'm here to do. So I want you to feel more confident. I know so many of you because I read your blogs and I have the conversations in the Facebook groups and I have the conversations in real life. So many of you feel overwhelmed by birth trauma. You don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. You don't know how to kind of shake it off and not feel that really intense feeling of compassion fatigue when it hits, burnout, all that kind of stuff. So I want you to feel more confident knowing how to navigate it. Given that there are not really too many stories I hear of doulas, midwives, obstetricians, even doing an awful lot of training in this area. Um, You know, it's all about birth and birth preparation, but not for what happens when things go away that's less than desirable. So it has absolutely blown me away, to be honest, how little training, guidance and support there is for the people doing the supporting so that's a huge 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 part of what I'm aiming to do here is to spread the seeds of support and understanding and training and have a team of birth workers worldwide who are starting to feel more confident and more capable and not take this on as like a personal failing because they don't know what to do and they don't know what to say and they don't know how to cope okay so we can absolutely improve that and I want you to feel inspired to take action Particularly if you are feeling triggered by something, if something stirs something inside you that has to do with your own trauma, that has to do with your own life experiences that you have stuffed away and not dealt with and not want to thought about, yeah, to inspire you to do something about that. Because I do think trauma is a huge teacher and if you are willing to go there, And you want to support other people. This is the thing. If you want to support other people through their trauma and you haven't dealt with your own, it's going to catch up with you. Mark my words, it's going to catch up with you. So it's about how to embrace this amazing position that birth workers are in as emotional first responders to apply a little bit of emotional first aid for yourself and for your clients because it's something that absolutely needs to be improved so that we can all feel like the climate is changing things are getting better rather than getting worse and we're just throwing our hands up and going oh well there's nothing we can do about it and then we just get burnt out and jaded and just keep telling telling stories about how burnt out and jaded we are that's not the point I want to see growth I want to see action that would be amazing all right let me tell you a bit about me so I trained as a clinical psychologist in, I don't know, (laughs) over a decade ago. So I started my master's in 2006. Yeah, so anyway, we're going back a while. Um, And I trained as a clinical psychologist, I guess, because that was the option that was offered at my university. But also um, I was particularly interested in being able to work with things like anxiety and depression and grief and the whole spectrum of all that kind of stuff. So 
Um, I did my master's thesis on a comparison of non-suicidal self-injury or what was more popularly at the time called self-mutilation and self-poisoning. Um, so comparing those two behaviours. So self-poisoning, if you're not sure what that is, it's like probably what we would call like taking an overdose of paracetamol or some other sort of substance that um, has the intention not necessarily to end your life, but it's to um, it's a, it's what we call an operant behaviour. So the intended outcome is to change the behaviour of someone else. So generally what happens is someone feels very, very overwhelmed. They don't have the emotional and social skills to express their trauma and their distress a different way so they do something dramatic in order to try and get the help seeking that they need that's like the reader's digest version but anyway so from there i transferred to a phd in around end of 2008 i guess and so i changed my project a little bit um, and I then started looking at a comparison of non-suicidal self-injury in people with and without borderline personality disorder. So I won't get into too much of all of that here, but I guess looking at it in one way, BPD is just another way of looking at extreme complex trauma. So I've got a lot of research experience in that capacity, working with really, really, really highly distressed people who have really complicated, traumatic, stressful personal backgrounds. So it all sort of leads into um, the work that I do now. When I was doing my training, like lots of other clinical psych registrar, registrars, I had to do thousands and thousands and thousands of unpaid <laughs> intern labor in order to do that so I guess a huge chunk of my experience came from private practice so that is primarily what my background is in it's treating individuals in private practice and so as part of my um, specialty I suppose you would say um, I worked I did a lot of perinatal work because I found that really really rewarding um, seeing how much chaos <laughs> babies cause in people's lives and how, again, little support there is for people who are thinking of getting pregnant, trying to get pregnant, have had loss, have had grief, have had babies, like just there's so much stuff to cover there. So that's sort of always just been part of what I've done floating around in the background for the last 10 years. And then I guess as a add-on to that, when I became um, pregnant with my first daughter, I was interested in looking for ways to manage the pain of labour, knowing what I knew from my uh, background in self-harm. I knew that there's interesting things that the brain does with pain um, without necessarily using drugs or having any sort of intervention. So I knew there was a possibility there, this amazing sort of... Um, as I like to call it, like your brain is this 24-hour pharmacy of natural drugs. It's just a matter of learning how to unlock it. So I came across hypnobirthing and rather than just taking it as a participant, being the overachiever that I am, I decided I would train up in it and thought, hmm, okay, I'll try this out. I'll guinea pig it on myself and if it works, inverted quotes, um, I'll use it. And if it doesn't, then I'll just, you know, write it off as another bit of training that I did in your third trimester of pregnancy because, you know, some of us take on interesting projects like moving houses and starting training and doing all sorts of things when they're pregnant. That's something I seem to do. 
Anyway, long story short, I'm so glad that I did that training because it massively, massively helped me personally. And it's something um, that's been really a nice adjunct to my practice as I've had kids myself of working, um, going back to the beginning, I suppose, of doing childbirth education. And those of you who've either taken really good childbirth education yourself or have taught it, you know the amazing power of independent childbirth education. So amazing. So anyway, that kind of leads us into then, I guess, talking a bit about my why. So the main reason that I'm doing this and why am I talking about birth trauma? Let's talk about my births. So let's go back to my first daughter, who is three now. So as I said, um, it was a relatively smooth pregnancy, I would say, other than hyperemesis for the first four or five months. Um, a diagnosis of gestational diabetes because I was, you know, 0.5 or something off the reading. But anyway, who knows whether I had a diagnosis of that or not. But anyway, I proceeded as if I did. And then when I got to 41 and a half weeks, I think, the discussions about being induced came up. And look, I was a first time mum. I agreed to it because I guess I got to a point in the pregnancy where I felt like that was a good choice. And while I don't necessarily reflect on too much as like, was it a good choice or not a good choice? It's the choice that I made. I guess the the birth itself was quite smooth and quite beautiful. And I used all my hypnobirthing techniques through that. So I breathed I breathed my way through that um, induction beautifully. It was intense, absolutely no doubt about it, and it was fast. So (laughs) turns out I am one of those people who needs like barely a sniff of Sinto, and that puts me like (sighs) so much further ahead than potentially what I, you know, could have started off with had they used another method, but that's a different, you know, discussion (laughs) for a different day. So anyway, it was an hour and a half start to finish labour and my daughter sped out like I guess what I call superwoman style. So neutral hand first. Um, I remember being told, oh, you know, slow down, slow down, slow down. I'm like, no, bugger that. I'm pushing. My body tells me it wants to push. So that's what I'm going to do. And that was all fine. Um, It was only about an hour or so I would say after the placenta was delivered that I actually started to feel what I would describe as pain like proper proper going into fight or flight something's not quite right here sort of pain so pain deep 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 in my back sort of in my not quite in my spine but sort of just like right in my bum I don't know how else to explain it but anyway so I think it was kind of thought at the time, like, because there was no signs of any sort of damage other than like a superficial um, tear and I was stitched up and everything seemed all right. Um, so it was thought maybe I'd like bruised my coccyx or something like that. But anyway, it escalated really, really, really fast. And I remember having this sensation of I just need to get up and sit like sit on a toilet and it's not as if I actually needed the toilet or anything like that but that was very confusing because I kept saying I need to get out of this bed and sit like sit upright because when I sat on the toilet I felt a lot of relief in this sensation of pain that I had in my back 
And that was a bit unusual. And there was some hemorrhaging. And in this, you know, first instance, first time mum induced, all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, I'm a pale Scottish person. So, yep, hemorrhaging, I guess, was part of the picture. But then there was more and there was more and there was more and there was more. Like, it was quite significant hemorrhaging. And I was getting to the point where I couldn't even speak. Like, I was in so much pain. It was just, I was not even with it um so I remember it felt like a lifetime until my obstetrician came back in the room to come and attempt to examine me and I say attempt because that experience of oh I don't even exactly remember what happened I'm assuming she attempted a vaginal exam and I remember just like making this blood curdling scream sound she's like no we're getting you to theatre that was one of the most traumatic events of my life having that attempted exam at that time but anyway so I then was wheeled off to emergency surgery and I experienced what's it's not talked about in the research literature too much but I know from studying um, PTSD for my honours thesis that this is what I was experiencing so it's something called peritraumatic death imprint so peri meaning at the time At the time of a traumatic event, you have a moment where you think, this is it, right? I'm done for. I'm actually going to die. You might even have a moment where you think actually death would be so much more comforting than this at the moment. So I remember seeing my husband holding our brand new baby girl in his arms and being wheeled away and waving goodbye and actually thinking, like it's, it's even when I talk about it, and I have talked about this, publicly privately so many times in my life every time I start saying those words I'm immediately transported back there and I start welling up with tears because it's just there's no other experience like it if you've ever had something like this happen in your life whether it's been a motor vehicle accident or something else birth where you think I'm actually going to die I don't think I'm going to see you again and it's oh even now it's so hard to talk about but I have to talk about it because it's so important to talk about it and the more I talk about it in some respects the easier that it gets um even like recording this podcast I took a couple of goes doing this so this is not the first time I'm talking about this today I took a couple of goes and that's all right like you know there's tears are okay the needing to pause is okay that's part of the process um so anyway let's get back to the story now that I've taken a breath So uh, when I woke up, my OB explained to me that it seems there was a fairly significant internal tear. So it seems likely, possibly, probably, that when my baby girl was making her exit to the outside world, she held on to my vaginal wall with her hand as she exited and she tore a fairly large chunk out. And so that had created a hematoma that then just kept filling and then when I sat upright obviously like it popped and it emptied and I got the sense of relief and then it just filled up again and filled up again and filled up again. So that sort of coincided again with that first hour or so after of trying to learn to breastfeed and again like I had gestational diabetes possibly either way my baby's blood sugar was low whether it was low because of diabetes or whether it was low because of all the intervention and all that kind of stuff who knows. For me, that's not what I'm here to discuss today. I'm here to just talk about um, how it was after. So breastfeeding was hell for me that time. 
that's probably a different topic for a different podcast on a different day. But anyway, I came out of that experience okay, like not great. I didn't have postnatal depression. I didn't necessarily have PTSD, but it was one of those experiences where I was like, yeah, that didn't go at all the way I kind of hoped or intended it was going to go. And so then let's fast forward to second pregnancy. Um, I knew this time around I wanted another non-medical person in my birth space just because I guess I felt that would be more supportive. I felt it was sort of less like, you know, two people, me and my husband against other people. Not that it's a way of looking at it like it's you against the medical profession. But I think for me, I remember saying at the time um, about why I wanted a doula, this idea of um, the triangle being like the strongest shape. So having me in the middle, husband on one side, doula on the other, made me feel like I was sort of protected in this force field of strength and light and love and then all the medical stuff could happen around me and then I would feel okay so that's what I did and so I did loads of preparation and I was someone who previously this is a great example of growth and how we evolve and how we change but I was someone who previously thought oh nah doula or not for me so sorry guys But I used to think a doula was someone who was really quiet and unobtrusive and spoke in this lovely voice and wore cheesecloth and Birkenstocks and smelled like patchouli. And I hate (laughs) patchouli. So my, um, it was so like, I think written in the stars though, because I remember going to a conference, actually Hypnobirthing Australia conference, and a couple of my new friends, colleagues were talking about this amazing course for perinatal professionals and this amazing woman and she's a doula and she's a photographer and I'm just like, oh yeah, okay, so um, oh, maybe you've heard of her, maybe you know her, maybe you follow her on Instagram, you can't be a birth worker and not have heard of her. Anyway, so the lovely Angela Gallo, when I googled her, I saw someone who wasn't what I thought a doula was supposed to look like, someone covered in tattoos with bright purple hair so full of life and loud and just like a presence someone who wasn't going to hang around in the background and just be quiet someone who was going to be like hello I'm here and that's what I needed I felt like I needed somebody who was really um quite a presence so people would be like oh yeah okay this is this is something different so that's that's what I did and from our first connection we connected really really well and we did a lot of preparation to make sure um, as much as we can famous last words that this second birth was going to be different so second birth again bloody girls I was quite ill again I mean I actually remember feeling nauseous before I even took a pregnancy test I I knew I mean people say they know when you're trying to get pregnant you just you know think everything is a pregnancy sign but for me I remember having a sip of wine and going oh no oh that doesn't feel good Mm, what's that about and so yeah hyperemesis (laughs) developed really really quickly again and I lost a reasonable amount of weight in those first months um 
I was on like, you know, like such a weird diet of food that I could manage to eat and medication and the whole, you know, drips and the whole lot. Anyway, I, I suppose by the time I was maybe, I want to say seven months because it, yeah, took a while. Thankfully, I didn't have it the whole time like some people do or even after birth, like mine was only until seven months, but I was pretty incapacitated for those seven months. Once I was able to start eating again, it was almost like my body just went, oh, food. And like the weight just started to stack on. So I'm someone who is 5'4", pre-babies, I'm kind of around the 50 kilo mark. And I think, I don't know, I can't remember exactly what week it was, but there was a time at which I started to measure ahead, like quite quickly, somewhere around the end of second trimester, which I didn't make much of. I'm like, yeah, you know, scans, measurements, whatever. And my obstetrician was someone who was not, you know, particularly phased by that either. Someone quite um, capable and woman-centered and very pro-physiological birth, which I know doesn't happen very often. So she never sort of did the like, oh, well, you're going to have to have a cesarean or anything like that. She just said, hmm, yeah, this baby's going to be big. And then as time progressed and I got to like 42 and a half weeks with this one, there were definite conversations about, so you know shoulder dystocia is a likely, you know, it's a possibility. And I'm like, no, I'll be, you know, fine. I'll be on all fours. There's the Gaskin manoeuvre. I've done research. Bizarrely, I had actually um, written and had an article published about big babies and why you shouldn't fear having a big baby um, when I was pregnant with my first daughter. And I never, ever, ever in a million years thought that I would go on to have a big baby myself. So little miss number two was exactly five kilos on the button. So for those of you who are not in Australia um, or use a different system, that's about 11.3 or 11.4. My maths isn't very good, but anyway, it's a fairly chunky baby. And, you know, I... With this birth, it was tricky because part of me in the planning thought, hmm, home birth might be a nice option. But my intuition said that's not the choice for me. And, you know, I undenied about it. Of course I did for months and months and months. And I kept coming back, I suppose, because of the experience I had the first time, that feeling of lying in pain, bleeding, waiting for support, I just felt that there was absolutely no way I wanted to go through that experience again, that experience of having to wait um, to get help. So whether I was in a hospital or not, look, it may not have made any difference and it's the kind of, you know, it's just part of the picture. But anyway, so I decided to do hospital birth again because that's what I was comfortable with in as much as you can be comfortable with hospital births and all the things that go with it, but that's what I decided. So anyway... Um, we got to a stage where I was having prodromal labor for quite a few weeks, like on off, on off, on off, on off. There was a point where I'd had a stretch and sweep because I'm like, yeah, okay. Like I'm, you know, 41 and a half weeks now. Sure. I'll have a stretch and sweep, whatever. And then I went for fetal monitoring and I remember this midwife turning and looking at me and saying, are you in labor? that was a contraction. Did you feel that? That was, a, that was a contraction. Like, look at this. And I'm like, ah, mm, yeah, I don't know. So the power of using the hypnobirthing sort of got to me a bit. And I'm like, oh, could I be in labor? I don't know. 
maybe I am. Maybe I'm just like doing really, really well and I'm not really, you know, um, experiencing a lot of discomfort, which happens when you, you know, prepare yourself and you do the breathing and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, we got into a situation where they're like, yeah, I don't think we're letting you out of this hospital because um, I live in the country about an hour away. It was, you know, five o'clock on a Friday. It was summer. Traffic was crazy. So uh, rather than staying, I'm like, I mean, how often do you get invited to stay? Like, oh, would you like to stay overnight? Like that doesn't happen. Usually it's like, no, go away and go home. Come back when you're progressed. But given my first labour was so quick and all those sorts of things anyway, they're like, oh, I think I think you should hang around. So we did hang around and we booked a hotel and I rang the doula and did all the things and then it all just phased out. And this sort of happened on and off a few times. So anyway my and I'd had you know acupuncture and I'd done lots and lots and lots of things to sensibly naturally get this baby to kind of you know move along because I really really didn't want Sinto again I was like "Mm, anything I can do to not have to have any sort of intervention within my power that is safe that's what I want to do but then you know once you get past 42 weeks things change a bit like people's perception is not always as like understanding and as helpful and you know I couldn't leave the house without people kind of being like oh why aren't you being induced oh why don't you have a Caesar blah 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 anyway so a long story short I decided on what was that 42 and something 42 and a half to just go in and have my waters broken and see what that would you know result in and that worked pretty well so I started labor quite you know quickly after that and I was progressing really well but I remember in the active pushing stage thinking bloody hell like your sister didn't take quite this much work that muscle memory and I know every birth is different and every baby is different but that muscle memory for you know that really really deep deep work that you have to do I remember thinking a baby should have at least crowned by now. Like this isn't, I didn't think this isn't right because I didn't let my mind go there. My mind wasn't even going to shoulder dystocia or anything like that. I just remember thinking like, this is quite a bit more effort than I remember from thinking like that level sort of push got your sister out. Why are you not coming out, demon child? Anyway, so I was doing really well and progressing really well. But then, I mean, I didn't know this at the time. This is all sort of notes like after postpartum when I talked to my obstetrician, talked to my team and kind of found out what happened. But anyway, um, the turtle sign was diagnosed. So little puffed out cheeks and I'd been pushing for longer than an hour and I'd already had a baby and a bunch of different factors went together that meant shoulder dystocia was diagnosed. And so I remember being like advised okay we're gonna have to put you on your back and I was not happy about that I'm like oh I don't want to push on my back but I'm like okay all right let's I was at a stage where I'm like okay yep I'm I'm open to suggestion for changing positions or whatever I don't really see how that's gonna help but anyway so then it was just an intense intense three minutes which felt so much longer than three minutes to get this baby out. And I'm not medically trained and I'm not a midwife, so I don't know all the exact manoeuvres, but I know that um, Gaskin Manoeuvre wasn't doing it, Woods' Screw wasn't doing it, Um, there's a couple of other ones. So there was like five or six different ones that were tried and then 
even the move that my OB is very experienced said, you know, usually when I do this, that pops the other shoulder free. These shoulders, as she said, were just like concrete and we're just not budging. So anyway, um, we managed to resolve the shoulder dystocia to human arms up inside your body is like quite a visceral experience, not one that I'd like to have repeated. But again, I breathed my way through it and I got, in some ways, the outcome that I wanted and that there wasn't forceps, there wasn't any other sort of intervention, there wasn't like an emergency C-section or anything like that. So that sense of relief when that baby was out just took over everything else. And I actually didn't even notice that my baby was blue or that the cord had been cut or that she wasn't on me. I was just so physically, emotionally, spiritually depleted from that intense experience that I remember just laying back in that bed kind of just trying to catch my breath and being like oh thank fuck that is over but then things sort of started to get a bit like oh what's going on here my daughter's face looked not like everybody else's face everybody else's face looked like they were sort of trying to hold things together and not saying very much I remember Ange looking concerned And her saying at some point, I can't remember what point, that she was just going to leave the room for a second. And I remember just kind of like looking down at my belly where my baby used to be and thinking, fuck, where's my baby? Where's my baby? And I had that immediate bang, fight or flight kind of panic of my baby's not here. Where is she? Um, And she was being resuscitated. She was okay. Absolutely not a graze on her. Little love, no broken collarbones, no grazing, no nerve damage, nothing. And I'm not saying it's all about a physically undamaged, healthy baby. But that part was like, yeah, okay. But then because I'd had the fight or flight response kick in, birthing that placenta was fucking uncomfortable. It was really, really not pleasant at all. And I just wanted it to be over as soon as possible. And I think I dissociated for part of that, passed out for part of it. I remember being offered um, gas and so I took a quick huff of that and I just had like that, you know, 40s Hollywood moment where I almost could imagine floating up out of my body, seeing me put my hand to my forehead and just um, the colour started to drain from everything and I could hear people's voices talking in slow motion, asking if I was okay and then I kind of blacked out. And then I came to, and I remember so many people saying, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, I don't know if I'm okay. I don't even know if I'm in the room at the moment. Like, just give me, give me a sec to figure out where I am and what I'm doing. And um, once my baby was placed on me, everything in my instinct and training about the hormones of birth just took over. And so I sniffed, kissed, touched, loved on that baby so much and I honestly think that was a huge part of that early healing process of getting the oxytocin going of getting the prolactin going of getting all those amazing hormones that I did not experience in my first birth going this time because it was really important to me and I knew what a difference it could make so I went from having this like terror panic dissociated flat to then just being like full of the best high of my life I was in pain I was a bit like oh shit yeah okay what's just happened here but I felt the best I have ever felt like it was better than any um drug I may or may not have (laughs) taken in my lifetime so 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 good and so then I was sort of a bit surprised actually I was kind of like oh 
I actually feel okay. I feel good. And I remember thinking like, okay, just hang on to this. You don't need to like overanalyze it and talk yourself out of it if this is how you're feeling. But I remember just thinking, yeah, I still feel okay. I think, I think this is okay. And so in the hours and days that passed, I continued to feel okay. And I did continue to question it. And yet I suppose I knew on some level that it's not necessarily the case that everybody who has a traumatic experience um, has PTSD. Some of us through, I don't know, I wouldn't say conscious effort. I don't think anybody comes out of a trauma or goes through a trauma and thinks, right, I'm you know, going to put in my five-point plan for what to do so I don't get traumatised. But I do think you know, post-traumatic growth is absolutely possible and it's you know, not about saying, oh, I had to go through that experience to get the meaning and this had to happen and, you know, all is well and I wouldn't take it back and all that kind of stuff. I don't, I find all that sort of stuff a bit ick, (laughs) to be honest. I kind of tend to look at it quite practically in terms of like, okay, there's things that helped me this time around, there's things that I did. How do I qualify it? How do I quantify it? And how do I then pass it on to other people? Because the thing that really struck me after that birth is that whilst I was okay and whilst my baby was okay and my husband was okay, my doula was not okay. And, you know, you build up a relationship with this person over months and you care about them because they care about you and they feel what you feel. And I think I could feel very much that Ange was struggling to cope with my experience and whilst you know uh, she would be horrified I suppose to know that I was concerned about her thinking about her wondering about her rather than you know focusing on my brand new baby and my recovery and all that kind of stuff it's the whole oh it's not about me sort of stuff I couldn't help but wonder and think about her and wanting to know how she was doing and how she was coping and a huge part of that then sort of just got me thinking like even day two um after my baby was born like you know I seemed okay but that doesn't mean I was okay and that sort of raised a few concerns I suppose for me as a psychologist like that the system sort of looked at me and went oh okay she seems okay there wasn't really any follow-up for me (laughs) like you know Um, there wasn't any sort of, all right, um, here's some options for counselling if he wanted, here's some, you know, options for support, that kind of thing, probably because I did seem okay. But I thought, gee, if that's what's there for me, what about the other people who are in the room witnessing it, knowing that vicarious trauma is a very real thing? And I just thought, there's nothing. Like, there's nothing for birth workers. As a doula, you are expected I suppose to just get on your merry way get back in your car hold your tears back so that you can go through the front door and be present with your kids and get back to normal whatever normal is and do the whole okay yep it's not about me back to my life sort of thing and yet thinking like where is the support where is where is the trauma-informed practice where is the trauma-informed care where is the training about sustainable self-care? Because I think, you know, when you do trauma work, you need specific, measurable, long-term, sustainable 
plans for your self-care. I think, you know, everybody's different, but I am a big believer in trauma-triggering stuff for yourself and that's the uncomfortable work that we need to do in order to move forward. So it's not just simply about going home and pouring a glass of wine and having a bubble bath and being like, oh, well, that was a bit of a shit shift, but, you know, I'll be okay, soldier on. And it might be like that for some people, and it's not to say that there's an, a right way to cope and a, and a wrong way to cope. But the thing I definitely noticed with Ange is, like, here is this powerhouse of a woman so strong, so capable, so compassionate, so empathic. And who's she got to turn to? Like, yeah, family, friends, support, that kind of thing, absolutely. But no no trauma-informed practice, not really. Um, so then if that's, you know, the reaction potentially that's happening in someone who is so capable, it's got to be like that for other people, right? So not just doulas, but midwives and the obstetricians and the students and the photographers and the nurses and you know, going further than that. So people like interpreters who are present at a birth, like there's just so many people who can be affected by a traumatic birth and so many people who work with birthing people do not receive really any sort of training or, you know, guided sort of um, support, supervision, mentoring, whatever you want to call it, in how to process this, like how to actually recognise you're being triggered by something the trauma is being stored in your body. What do we do to shift some of that? What do we do to achieve growth? What are the things that are coming up for you that you have stuffed down in a box and not dealt with? Um, and not necessarily in a way that's like me saying, okay, everybody needs to go and get therapy. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think therapy suits some people for some things, some of the time. But a huge part of what I want this podcast to be about is, okay, what is support in that broader term? Yeah, it might be therapy. Here's the different types of therapy. It might be more life coaching, mentoring, having somebody to support you, challenge you, that kind of thing. It might be something more holistic. It might be something more embodiment practice work. So I guess having all that in mind, yeah, I I really want to start having more discussions like good, you know, thought out, intelligent, supportive, compassionate discussions about how we are supporting the supporters, how are we helping the helpers, what's out there, what can we do for them? Because, you know, we've got, yeah, the one in three women who have birth trauma, but we've got potentially, depending on which stats you look at, one in five midwives in Australia who have diagnosable PTSD from working with birth. That is like an occupational health crisis, is it not? And I just really feel we need to do something about it. So join me, as I said, as we have some good discussions, if, as we start to kind of pick this apart and see what can we do to make this better. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for taking the time out for yourself to sit back and do some mind-body connection about this really, really important topic. It really will go a long way, I hope, to understanding yourself, understanding what you need for your own personal and professional growth and changing this awful climate of birth culture that we've got. So, 
If you're feeling, you know, distressed, triggered, even just a bit shaken up by something, even if you're not exactly sure what it is, make sure that you take a breath, come back, centre yourself to where you are and what you're doing and what you're going to be doing next. And if you're feeling like you need some support or you know someone who does, you can call Lifeline in Australia, so 13 11 14, or you can call Panda. 1300 726 306 and that's a Monday to Friday um, that the calls are open so working through trauma is clearly it's a non-negotiable in order to have a sustainable career as a birth worker and if you want to train with me there's a couple of different ways that you can do that so you can do mentoring coaching so not necessarily therapy per se but you know there's the option up my sleeve as being a trained therapist but if you want to work with me in a one-on-one capacity or you want to do my online course birth trauma training for birth workers that's coming out relatively soon then you can do that and you can find me and contact me through drerin.com.au so hopefully you've walked away from this feeling something that you needed to hear today or you've learned something or you're feeling just that little bit of extra (laughs) excited anxious uncomfortable something that is going to propel you to move forward take some small step forward in whatever that looks like for you talk to you next time